Chapter Five of Eight Thirteen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eight Thirteen by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Five. Monsieur Lenormand at work. On the morning of the thirty-first of May, all the newspapers reminded their readers that Dupin, in a letter addressed to Monsieur Lenormand, had announced the escape of the messenger Jérôme for that date and one of them summed up the situation, as it then stood, in very able terms. The horrible carnage at the Palace Hotel took place as far back as the 17th of April. What has been discovered since? Nothing. There were three clues. The cigarette-case, the initials L and M, and the parcel of clothes left behind in the office of the hotel. What advantage has been taken of these clues? None. It appears that the police suspect one of the visitors who was staying on the first floor, and who disappeared in a doubtful manner. Have they found him? Have they established his identity? No. The tragedy, therefore, remains as mysterious as at the beginning. The gloom is impenetrable. To complete the picture, we are told that dissension prevails between the prefect of police and his subordinate, M. Lenormand, and that the latter, finding himself less vigorously supported by the Prime Minister, virtually sent in his resignation several days ago. According to our information, the conduct of the Kesselbach case is now in the hands of the deputy chief of the detective service, M. Weber, a personal enemy of M. Lenormand's. In short, disorder and confusion reign, and this in the face of Lupin, who stands for method, energy, and steadfastness of mind. What conclusion do we draw from these facts? Briefly this. Lupin will release his accomplice to-day, the 31st of May, as he foretold. This conclusion, which was echoed in all the other newspapers, was also the conclusion at which the general public had arrived, and we must take it that the threat was not considered devoid of importance in high places, for the prefect of police, and in the absence of M. Lenormand, who was said to be unwell, the deputy chief of the detective service, M. Weber, had adopted the most stringent measures, both at the Palais de Justice and at the Santé prison, where the prisoner was confined. They did not dare, for sheer reasons of shame, to suspend on that particular day the examinations conducted daily by M. Formerie. But from the prison to the boulevard du Palais, a regular mobilization of police forces guarded the streets along the line. To the intense astonishment of one and all, the 31st of May passed, and the threatened escape did not take place. One thing did happen, an attempt to execute the plan, as was betrayed by a block of tramway cars, omnibuses and drays along the road taken by the prison van, and the unaccountable breaking of one of the wheels of the van itself. But the attempt assumed no more definite form. Lupin, therefore, had met with a check. The public felt almost disappointed, and the police triumphed loudly. On the next day, Saturday, an incredible rumour spread through the palais and the newspaper offices. Jérôme the messenger had disappeared. Was it possible? Although the special editions confirmed the news, people refused to believe it. But at six o'clock a note published by the Dépêche du Soir made it official. We have received the following communication signed by Arsène Lupin. The special stamp affixed to it, in accordance with the circular which Lupin recently sent to the press, guarantees the genuineness of the document. Quote, to the editor of the Dépêche du Soir. Sir, pray make my apologies to the public for not keeping my word yesterday. I remembered, at the last moment, that the 31st of May fell on a Friday. Could I set my friend at liberty on a Friday? I did not think it right to assume that responsibility. I must also apologize for not on this occasion explaining, with my customary frankness, how this little event was managed. My process is so ingenious and so simple that I fear lest, if I revealed it, every criminal should be inspired by it. 
how surprised people will be on the day when i am free to speak is that all i shall be asked that is all but it had to be thought of permit me to be sir your obedient servant arsene lupin End quote. an hour later m lenormand was rung up on the telephone and informed that valenglais the prime minister wished to see him at the ministry of the interior how well you're looking my dear lenormand and i who thought that you were ill and dared not leave your room i am not ill monsieur le président so you were sulking in your tent but you were always a bad-tempered fellow i confess to the bad temper monsieur le président but not to the sulking but you stay at home and lupin takes advantage of it to release his friends how could i stop him how why lupin's trick was of the plainest in accordance with his usual method he announced the date of the escape beforehand everybody believed in it an apparent attempt was planned the escape was not made and on the next day when nobody is thinking about it whoosh the bird takes flight monsieur le président said the chief of the detective service solemnly lupin disposes of such means that we are not in a position to prevent what he has decided on the escape was mathematically certain i preferred to pass the hand and leave the laughter for others to face valenglet chuckled <laughs> it's a fact that monsieur le préfet de police and monsieur weber cannot be enjoying themselves at the present moment but when all is said can you explain to me monsieur lenormand all that we know monsieur le président is that the escape took place from the palais de justice the prisoner was brought in a prison van and taken to monsieur formerie's room he left monsieur formerie's room but he did not leave the palais de justice and yet nobody knows what became of him it's most bewildering most bewildering and has nothing else been discovered yes the inner corridor leading to the examining magistrate's rooms was blocked by an absolutely unprecedented crowd of prisoners warders counsel and doorkeepers and it was discovered that all those people had received forged notices to appear at the same hour on the other hand not one of the examining magistrates who were supposed to have summoned them sat in his room that day and this because of forged notices from the public prosecutor's office sending them to every part of paris and of the outskirts is that all no two municipal guards and a prisoner were seen to cross the courtyards a cab was waiting for them outside and all three stepped in and your supposition lenormand your opinion my supposition monsieur le président is that the two municipal guards were accomplices who profiting by the disorder in the corridor took the place of the three warders and my opinion is that this escape succeeded only through such special circumstances and so strange a combination of facts that we must look upon the most unlikely cases of complicity as absolutely certain lupin for that matter has connections at the palais that balk all our calculations he has agents in your ministry he has agents at the prefecture of police he has agents around me it is a formidable organization a detective service a thousand times more clever more daring more varied and more supple than that under my own orders and you stand this lenormand no i do not then why this slackness on your part since the beginning of the case what have you done against lupin i have prepared for the struggle oh, capital and while you were preparing he was acting so was i and do you know anything i know a great deal what speak leaning on his stick m lenormand took a little contemplative walk across the spacious room then he sat down opposite valenglet brushed the facings of his olive-green coat with his finger-tips settled his spectacles on his nose and said plainly monsieur le président i hold three trump-cards in my hand first i know the name under which arsene lupin is hiding at this moment the name under which he lived on the boulevard houseman receiving his assistance daily reconstructing and directing his gang 
"'But then why in heaven's name don't you arrest him?' I did not receive these particulars until later. The prince, let us call him Prince Dash, has disappeared. He is abroad, on other business. And if he does not return? The position which he occupies, the manner in which he has flung himself into the Kesselbach case, necessitate his return, and under the same name. Nevertheless, Monsieur le Président, I come to my second trump. I have at last discovered Pierre le Duc. Nonsense! Or rather Lupin discovered him, and before disappearing settled him in a little villa in the neighbourhood of Paris. By Jove! But how did you know? Oh, easily! Lupin has placed two of his accomplices with Pierre le Duc, to watch him and defend him. Now these accomplices are two of my own detectives, two brothers whom I employ in the greatest secrecy, and who will hand him over to me at the first opportunity. Well done, you! So that, so that, as Pierre le Duc, we may say, is the central point of the efforts of all those who are trying to solve the famous Kesselbach secret, I shall, sooner or later, through Pierre le Duc, catch first the author of the treble murder, because that miscreant substituted himself for Mr. Kesselbach in the accomplishment of an immense scheme, and because Mr. Kesselbach had to find Pierre le Duc in order to be able to accomplish that scheme, and secondly, Arsène Lupin, because Arsène Lupin is pursuing the same object. Splendid! Pierre le Duc is the bait which you are throwing to the enemy. And the fish is biting, Monsieur le Président. I have just had word that a suspicious person was seen, a short time ago, prowling round the little villa where Pierre le Duc is living under the protection of my officers. I shall be on the spot in four hours. And the third trump, Lenormand? Monsieur le Président, a letter arrived yesterday, addressed to Mr. Rudolf Kesselbach, which I intercepted. Intercepted, eh? You're getting on! Yes, I intercepted it, opened it, and kept it for myself. Here it is. It is dated two months back. It bears the Cape Town postmark, and contains these words. My dear Rudolf, I shall be in Paris on the first of June, and in just as wretched a plight as when you came to my assistance. But I have great hopes of this Pierre Le Duc affair of which I told you. What a strange story it is! Have you found the man, I mean? Where do we stand? I am most anxious to know. The letter is signed Steinweg. The first of June, continued M. Lenormand, is to-day. I have ordered one of my inspectors to hunt me out this Steinweg. I have no doubt that he will succeed. Nor I, no doubt at all, cried Valenglay, rising from his chair, and I make you every apology, my dear Lenormand, and my humble confession. I was on the point of letting you slide, for good and all. To-morrow I was expecting the Prefect of Police and M. Weber. I knew that, Monsieur le Président. Impossible! But for that should I have put myself out? You now see my plan of campaign. On the one side I am setting traps in which the murderer will be caught sooner or later. Pierre le Duc or Steinweg will deliver him into my hands. On the other side I am on Arsène Lupin's heels. Two of his agents are in my pay, and he believes them to be his most devoted helpers. In addition to this he is working for me, because he is pursuing the perpetrator of the threefold crime as I am. Only he imagines that he is dishing me, whereas it is I who am dishing him. So I shall succeed, but on one condition. What is that? That I am given free scope, and allowed to act according to the needs of the moment, without troubling about the public who are growing impatient, or my superiors who are intriguing against me. I agree. In that case, Monsieur le Président, in a few days from this I shall be the victor, or I shall be dead. At Saint-Cloud, a little villa situated on one of the highest points of the upland, in an unfrequented road. It was eleven o'clock at night. M. Lenormand left his car at Saint-Cloud, and walked cautiously along the road. A shadow appeared. "'Is that you, Gourel?' "'Yes, chief,' 
Did you tell the brothers Doudeville that I was coming? Yes, your room is ready. You can go to bed and sleep. Unless they try to carry off Pierre Leduc tonight, which would not surprise me, considering the behaviour of the fellow whom the Doudevilles saw. They walked across the garden, softly entered the house, and went up to the first floor. The two brothers, Jean-Jacques Doudeville, were there. No news of Prince Sernine? asked Lenormand. No, chief. What about Pierre Leduc? He spends the whole day lying flat on his back in his room on the ground floor, or else in the garden. He never comes up to see us. Is he better? Much better. The rest has made a great change in his appearance. Is he wholly devoted to Lupin? To Prince Sernine, rather, for he does not suspect that the two are one and the same man. At least, I suppose so. One never knows with him. He does not speak at all. Oh, he's a queer fish. There's only one person who has the gift of cheering him up, of making him talk and even laugh. That's a young girl from Garches, to whom Prince Sernine introduced him. Geneviève Ernemont, her name is. She has been here three times already. She was here to-day. He added jestingly, I believe there's a little flirting going on. It's like His Highness Prince Sernine and Mrs. Kesselbach. It seems he's making eyes at her. That devil of a Lupin. M. Lenormand did not reply. But it was obvious that all these details, to which he seemed to attach no importance, were noted in the recesses of his memory, to be used whenever he might need to draw the logical inferences from them. He lit a cigar, chewed it without smoking it, lit it again, and dropped it. He asked two or three more questions, and then, dressed as he was, threw himself on his bed. "'If the least thing happens, let me be awakened. If not, I shall sleep through the night. Go to your posts, all of you.' The others left the room. An hour passed. Two hours. Suddenly M. Lenormand felt someone touch him, and Gourel said to him, "'Get up, chief. They have opened the gate.' "'One man or two. I only saw one. The moon appeared just then. He crouched down against a hedge.' "'And the brothers Doudeville?' I sent them out by the back. They will cut off his retreat when the time comes. Gourel took M. Lenormand's hand, led him downstairs, and then into a little dark room. Don't stir, chief. We are in Pierre Leduc's dressing-room. I am opening the door of the recess in which his bed stands. Don't be afraid. He has taken his veronal, as he does every evening. Nothing can wake him. Come this way. It's a good hiding-place, isn't it? These are the curtains of his bed. From here you can see the window and the whole side of the room between the window and the bed. The casement stood open, and admitted a vague light, which became very precise at times, when the moon burst through her veil of clouds. The two men did not take their eyes from the empty window-frame, feeling certain that the event which they were awaiting would come from that side. A slight creaking noise. "'He is climbing the trellis,' whispered Gourel. "'Is it high?' Six feet or so.' The creaking became more distinct. "'Go, Gourel,' muttered M. Lenormand. Find the Doudevilles, bring them back to the foot of the wall, and bar the road to anyone who tries to get down this way. Gourel went. At the same moment a head appeared at the level of the window. Then a leg was flung over the balcony. M. Lenormand distinguished a slenderly built man, below the middle height, dressed in dark colours and without a hat. The man turned and, leaning over the balcony, looked for a few seconds into space, as though to make sure that no danger threatened him. Then he stooped down and lay at full length on the floor. He appeared motionless, but soon M. Lenormand realized that the still blacker shadow which he formed against the surrounding darkness was coming forward, nearer. It reached the bed. M. Lenormand had an impression that he could hear the man's breathing, and at the same time that he could just see his eyes, keen, glittering eyes which pierced the darkness like shafts of fire, and which themselves could see through that same darkness. Pierre Leduc gave a deep sigh and turned over. 
a fresh silence. The man had glided along the bed with imperceptible movements, and his dark outline now stood out against the whiteness of the sheets that hung down to the floor. M. Lenormand could have touched him by putting out his arm. This time he clearly distinguished the breathing, which alternated with that of the sleeper, and he had the illusion that he also heard the sound of a heart beating. Suddenly a flash of light, the man had pressed the spring of an electric lantern, and Pierre-le-Duc was lit full in the face, but the man remained in the shade, so that M. Lenormand was unable to see his features. All that he saw was something that shone in the bright space, and he shuddered. It was the blade of a knife, and that thin, tapering knife, more like a stiletto than a dagger, seemed to him identical with the weapon which he had picked up by the body of Chapman, Mr. Kesselbach's secretary. He put forth all his will-power to restrain himself from springing upon the man. He wanted first to know what the man had come to do. The hand was raised. Was he going to strike? M. Lenormand calculated the distance in order to stop the blow. But no, it was not a murderous gesture, but one of caution. The hand would only fall if Pierre-le-Duc stirred or tried to call out, and the man bent over the sleeper as though he were examining something. The right cheek, thought M. Lenormand, the scar on the right cheek. He wants to make sure that it is really Pierre-le-Duc. The man had turned a little to one side, so that only his shoulders were visible. But his clothes, his overcoat, were so near that they brushed against the curtains behind which M. Lenormand was hiding. One movement on his part, thought the chief detective, a thrill of alarm, and I shall collar him. But the man, entirely absorbed in his examination, did not stir. At last, after shifting the dagger to the hand that held the lantern, he raised the sheet, at first hardly at all, then a little more, then more still, until the sleeper's left arm was uncovered and the hand laid bare. The flash of the lantern shone upon the hand, the fingers lay outspread, the little finger was cut on the second joint. Again Pierre-le-Duc made a movement, the light was immediately put out, and for an instant the man remained beside the bed, motionless, standing straight up. Would he make up his mind to strike? M. Lenormand underwent the agony of the crime which he could so easily prevent, but which he did not want to forestall before the very last second. A long, a very long silence. Suddenly he saw, or rather fancied that he saw, an arm uplifted. Instinctively he moved, stretching his hand above the sleeper. In making this gesture he hit against the man. A dull cry. The fellow struck out at space, defended himself at random, and fled toward the window. But M. Lenormand had leapt upon him and had his two arms around the man's shoulders. He at once felt him yielding, and as the weaker of the two, powerless in Lenormand's hands, trying to avoid the struggle and a slip from between his arms. Lenormand, exerting all his strength, held him flat against his chest, bent him in two, and stretched him on his back on the floor. "'I've got him! I've got him!' he muttered triumphantly. And he felt a singular elation at imprisoning that terrifying criminal, that unspeakable monster, in his irresistible grip. He felt him living and quivering, enraged and desperate, their two lives mingled, their breaths blended. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'Who are you? You'll have to speak!' And he clasped the enemy's body with still greater force, for he had an impression that that body was diminishing between his arms, that it was vanishing. He gripped harder and harder. And suddenly he shuddered from head to foot. He had felt, he still felt, a tiny prick in the throat. In his exasperation he gripped harder yet. The pain increased, and he observed that the man had succeeded in twisting one arm round, slipping his hand to his chest and holding the dagger on end. 
the arm it was true was incapable of motion but the closer m lenormand tightened his grip the deeper did the point of the dagger enter the proffered flesh he flung back his head a little to escape the point the point followed the movement and the wound widened then he moved no more remembering the three crimes and all the alarming atrocious and prophetic things represented by that same little steel needle which was piercing his skin and which in its turn was implacably penetrating suddenly he let go and gave a leap backwards then at once he tried to resume the offensive it was too late the man flung his legs across the window-sill and jumped look out gourel he cried knowing that gourel was there ready to catch the fugitive he leaned out a crunching of pebbles a shadow between two trees the slam of the gate and no other sound no interference without giving a thought to pierre leduc he called gourel doudeville no answer the great silence of the countryside at night in spite of himself he continued to think of the treble murder the steel dagger but no it was impossible the man had not had time had not even had the need to strike as he had found the road clear m lenormand jumped out in his turn and switching on his lantern recognized gourel lying on the ground damn it he swore if they've killed him they'll have to pay dearly for it but gourel was not dead only stunned and a few minutes later he came to himself and growled only a blow of the fist chief just a blow of the fist which caught me full in the chest but what a fellow there were two of them then yes a little one who went up and another who took me unawares while i was watching and the doudevilles haven't seen them one of them jacques was found near the gate bleeding from a punch in the jaw the other a little farther gasping for breath from a blow full on the chest what is it what happened asked m lenormand jacques said that his brother and he had knocked up against an individual who had crippled them before they had time to defend themselves was he alone no when he passed near us he had a pal with him shorter than himself did you recognize the man who struck you judging by the breadth of his shoulders i thought he might be the englishman of the palace hotel the one who left the hotel and whose traces we lost the major yes major parbury after a moment's reflection m lenormand said there is no doubt possible there were two of them in the kesselbach case the man with the dagger who committed the murders and his accomplice the major that is what prince sernine thinks muttered jacques doudeville and to-night continued the chief detective it is they again the same two and he added so much the better the chance of catching two criminals is a hundred times greater than the chance of catching one m lenormand attended to his men had them put to bed and looked to see if the assailants had dropped anything or left any traces he found nothing and went back to bed again himself in the morning as gourel and the doudevilles felt none the worse for their injuries he told the two brothers to scour the neighbourhood and himself set out with gourel for paris in order to hurry matters on and give his orders he lunched in his office at two o'clock he heard good news one of his best detectives Dutzi, had picked up steinweg rudolf kesselbach's correspondent as the german was stepping out of a train from marseilles is Dutzi there yes chief said gourel he's here with the german have them brought in to me at that moment the telephone bell rang it was jean doudeville speaking from the post-office at garches the conversation did not take long is that you jean any news yes chief major parbury well we have found him he has become a spaniard and has darkened his skin we have just seen him he was entering the garches free school he was received by that young lady you know the girl who knows prince sernine geneviève ernemont thunder 
M. Lenormand let go the receiver, made a grab at his hat, flew into the passage, met Dutzi and the German, shouted to them to meet him in his office at six o'clock, rushed down the stairs, followed by Gourel and two inspectors whom he picked up on the way, and dived into a taxicab. "'Quick as you can to Garches. Ten francs for yourself.' He stopped the car a little before the Parc de Villeneuve, at the turn of the lane that led to the school. Jean Doudeville was waiting for him, and at once exclaimed, "'He slipped away ten minutes ago, by the other end of the lane.' "'Alone?' "'No, with the girl.' M. Lenormand took Doudeville by the collar. "'Wretch! You let him go! But you ought to have... you ought to have... My brother is on his track. A lot of good that will do us. He'll stick your brother. You're no match for him, either of you.' He himself took the steering-wheel of the taxi, and resolutely drove into the lane, regardless of the cart-ruts and of the bushes on each side. They soon emerged on a parish road, which took them to a crossway where five roads met. M. Lenormand, without hesitation, chose the one on the left, the Saint-Cucoufa road. As a matter of fact, at the top of the slope that runs down to the lake, they met the other Doudeville brother, who shouted, "'They are in a carriage, half a mile away!' The chief did not stop. He sent the car flying down the incline, rushed along the bends, drove round the lake, and suddenly uttered an exclamation of triumph. Right at the top of a little hill that stood in front of them, he had seen the hood of a carriage." Unfortunately, he had taken the wrong road and had to back the machine. When he reached the place where the roads branched, the carriage was still there, stationary. And suddenly, while he was turning, he saw a girl spring from the carriage. A man appeared on the step. The girl stretched out her arm. Two reports rang out. She had taken bad aim without a doubt, for a head looked round the other side of the hood, and the man, catching sight of the motor-cab, gave his horse a great lash with the whip, and it started off at a gallop. The next moment a turn of the road hid the carriage from sight. M. Lenormand finished his tacking in a few seconds, darted straight up the incline, passed the girl without stopping, and turned round boldly. He found himself on a steep, pebbly forest road, which ran down between dense woods and which could only be followed very slowly and with the greatest caution. But what did he care? Twenty yards in front of him, the carriage, a sort of two-wheeled cabriolet, was dancing over the stones, drawn, or rather held back, by a horse which knew enough only to go very carefully, feeling its way and taking no risks. There was nothing to fear. Escape was impossible. And the two conveyances went shaking and jolting downhill. At one moment they were so close together that M. Lenormand thought of alighting and running with his men. But he felt the danger of putting on the brake on so steep a slope, and he went on, pressing the enemy closely, like a prey which one keeps within sight, within touch. "'We've got him, chief! We've got him!' muttered the inspectors, excited by the unexpected nature of the chase. At the bottom the way flattened out into a road that ran towards the Seine, towards Bougival. The horse, on reaching level ground, set off at a jog-trot, without hurrying itself and keeping to the middle of the road. A violent effort shook the taxi. It appeared, instead of rolling, to proceed by bounds, like a darting fawn, and slipping by the roadside slope, ready to smash any obstacle, it caught up the carriage, came level with it, passed it, an oath from M. Lenormand, shouts of fury. The carriage was empty. The carriage was empty. The horse was going along peacefully, with the reins on its back, no doubt returning to the stable of some inn in the neighbourhood, where it had been hired for the day. Suppressing his inward rage, the chief detective merely said, The major must have jumped out during the few seconds when we lost sight of the carriage at the top of the descent. We have only to beat the woods, chief, and we are sure to return empty-handed. The beggar is far away by this time. He's not one of those who are caught twice in one day. Oh, hang it all! Hang it all! 
they went back to the young girl whom they found in the company of jacques doudeville and apparently none the worse for her adventure m lenormand introduced himself offered to take her back home and at once questioned her about the english major parbury she expressed astonishment he is neither english nor a major and his name is not parbury then what is his name juan ribera he is a spaniard sent by his government to study the working of the french schools as you please his name and his nationality are of no importance he is the man we are looking for have you known him long a fortnight or so he had heard about a school which i have founded at garches and he interested himself in my experiment to the extent of proposing to make me an annual grant on the one condition that he might come from time to time to observe the progress of my pupils i had not the right to refuse no of course not but you should have consulted your acquaintances is not prince sernine a friend of yours he is a man of good counsel oh i have the greatest confidence in him but he is abroad at present did you not know his address no and besides what could i have said to him that gentleman behaved very well it was not until to-day but i don't know if i beg you mademoiselle speak frankly you can have confidence in me also well m ribera came just now he told me that he had been sent by a french lady who was paying a short visit to bougival that this lady had a little girl whose education she would like to entrust to me and that she wished me to come and see her without delay the thing seemed quite natural and as this is a holiday and as m ribera had hired a carriage which was waiting for him at the end of the road i made no difficulty about accepting a seat in it but what was his object after all she blushed and said to carry me off quite simply he confessed it to me after half an hour do you know nothing about him no does he live in paris i suppose so has he ever written to you do you happen to have a few lines in his handwriting anything which he left behind that may serve us as a clue no clue at all oh wait a minute but i don't think that has any importance speak speak please well two days ago the gentleman asked permission to use my typewriting machine and he typed out with difficulty for he evidently had no practice a letter of which i saw the address by accident what was the address he was writing to the journal and he put about twenty stamps into the envelope yes the agony column no doubt said m lenormand i have to-day's number with me chief said gourel m lenormand unfolded the sheet and looked at the eighth page presently he gave a start he had read the following sentence printed with the usual abbreviation to any person knowing mr steinweg advertiser wishes to know if he is in paris and his address reply through this column steinweg exclaimed gourel but that's the very man whom dutzy is bringing to you yes yes said m lenormand to himself it's the man whose letter to mr kesselbach i intercepted the man who put kesselbach on the track of pierre leduc so they too want particulars about pierre leduc and his past they too are groping in the dark he rubbed his hands steinweg was at his disposal in less than an hour steinweg would have spoken in less than an hour the murky veil which oppressed him and which made the kesselbach case the most agonizing and the most impenetrable that he had ever had in hand that veil would be torn asunder End of chapter five